Mrs. Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki As I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 19 Vienna was a democratic world in its relation to art. Distinction without affectation was the password for enjoyment in its society. There were people living there of international fame, meeting together at all hours, apparently entirely unaware of their distinction. A duchess would climb many flights of stairs if necessary to visit a cheerful, struggling sculptor who had no thought of fame or of himself. One of the archdukes played the violin most beautifully and was always humbly respectful to one who could play this instrument better than himself. Arthur Schnitzler seemed only too glad to return fresh from great acclaim in foreign land to his friends in Vienna who, he declared, cared too much for him to make a great fuss. The public balls of Vienna were great events, and Leszczycki took part in many of them. Several of them were annual functions, held for the pleasant purpose of bringing together the famous intellects and artists of the capital. They lasted until three or four o'clock in the morning, always shorter, however, than the smaller dances, which went on all night. Indeed, it was only a rather unsuccessful ball that broke up before daylight. Leszczycki greeted me once with congratulations upon my good sense in returning early from a ball. He had heard that I came home at two o'clock instead of dancing with the others until seven or eight o'clock. Of course, Vienna was not moderate in its dissipations, although it looked like a deserted city after ten o'clock at night, at which hour the porters promptly locked the doors. The first great public ball opened the season of the carnival in Vienna. Then there were Hungarian balls, where Hungarian national dances prevailed, and the Chardest danced in the wildest manner. There were Polish balls, where the Mazur was the event of the evening. It was a beautiful dance, but very difficult, and required the greatest freedom of movement and sense of rhythm. The most important ball was the one called the Ball of the City of Vienna, when the Emperor graced the occasion with his presence. At a signal, the crowd separated, the orchestra and bands played the national anthem, and down the long line walked His Imperial Majesty with a simple but incomparable dignity. Edward the Seventh had the same admirable poise, and when on one of his visits to Vienna a gala performance was given at the opera in his honour, the Viennese remarked the resemblance of the two rulers, and long remembered it. As soon as the national hymn was played, the orchestra broke into the beautiful Blue Danube, and Edward Strauss outdid himself to please the hundreds of Viennese assembled there to enjoy themselves. 
This ball was given in the great hall of the Palace of Justice, a handsome Gothic structure facing the park along the Ringstrasse. From the Palace of Justice stretched away as far as the eye could reach a succession of noble and beautiful buildings. The Ringstrasse itself looked like a beautiful park, particularly at night when the shadows were blended and only a few lights were visible. There were four or five rows of trees separating the bridle paths and walks along the side. Where parks were, still another row of trees and magnificent statues might be seen, such as the Grillparzer monument, with scenes from his plays carved in large pictures. A Greek temple could be seen between the trees. Ruskin criticized the character of the Viennese for putting that Greek temple down in a swamp. There was the big equestrian statue in the palace grounds, and Maria Theresa looked down upon one from the other side of the street. Beyond the ring, the streets took erratic courses, winding in and out among parks, large and small, swerving deferentially at the foot of statues and monuments in which Vienna abounds. They are an interesting study, apart from the dignity and beauty they lend to the streets and parks. The Viennese love statues and put them in the oddest places, not only in parks and museums, but in nooks and corners around and near the city. It is delightful to come suddenly and unexpectedly upon one of these groups, perhaps a little company of poets, musicians, or sovereigns, expressing so much and yet forever silent. For those who wish to sit among them in friendly fashion, marble benches are provided and glorious trees make privacy and shade. There used to be a ball given at the Opera House in Vienna called the Redoubt. The seats of the parquet were covered with a floor so that the boxes were on a level with it. This was a masked ball of intrigue. The men had to submit to appearing in ordinary clothes and unmasked, while the opposite sex could disguise itself in any way it pleased. At about one o'clock, at a given signal, off came the masks. Leshetitsky was particularly fond of this ball, which was like a game to him, and his pupils often made a real study of ways and means to mystify and intrigue him. They would even hold meetings secretly long before the day for this purpose. "'You may think you can deceive me,' he said, "'but I believe not. I shall remember the quality of your voices, and there will be some inflection that I can recognize.' He agreed to make a wager with us. The one who succeeded in taking him in was to receive a present from him. If he won, we were to give him something.' We well knew that our hands would be surely recognized, and that even under gloves it would be dangerous to show them. For several days we practiced different tones of voice, cultivated a strange and novel gait, and tried strange ways of holding our heads. Leshetitsky, we heard afterward, had been pressed to accept a dinner engagement, and had done so on condition that he could be excused early in the evening on the score of having three or four determined young pupils to cope with at the redoubt. This ball was a magnificent spectacle, 
The boxes were for those who liked them, but most of the people preferred to wander about on the main floor. This place was occupied by gorgeous imitations of gardens, alternating with thick groves of trees, where deep shades made capital trysting places, leaving brilliant lights in the open spaces to show off the glittering costumes of the dancers. Vienna, of all places in Europe, knew how to give a ball of this kind. The imagination and fantasy of the Viennese were inexhaustible, it was said that some of the stage setting of A Midsummer Night's Dream had been brought from the court theatre for this particular occasion, for the famous directors never spared themselves trouble in making this ball a quite superlative affair. Leschetizky found his match at this ball, for one of his pupils completely took him in. She walked boldly toward him under a great blaze of light and greeted him in Viennese dialect. "'I see some of your pupils are here,' she said. "'They are waiting for you, and you look as if you were waiting for them.' "'Yes,' replied Leschetizky, "'and I am all excitement, for they are clever girls, and I must keep my head. They all have their young bows here, and I am jealous, I suppose.' "'Is your wife here?' she asked. I have never seen her. They say she is beautiful. But beautiful wives do not usually have such handsome, elegant husbands as Master Leschetizky. Only a Viennese knows how to flatter like that, said Leschetizky. We have plenty of time. Let us walk through the garden. With the greatest pleasure, she replied. I have so often wanted to meet the great Leschetizky. "'You have the reputation of being very hard on women sometimes.' "'How do you like the English?' she added. "'If only they and the Americans could take on one or two of the charming qualities that Viennese ladies have.' "'You are a flatterer,' she said. "'Well, Vienna is good enough for me, although I should not speak, for I have never been outside it except once to Venice for a fortnight.' Here followed a long monologue by Leschetizky about Venice and Italy. "'Your Italian pupils are here tonight, too,' she resumed. "'I think I saw Mr. Sinigalia over there.' "'Yes,' he said. "'Possibly he is here.' "'He is versatile and interesting, isn't he?' said Leschetizky. "'His latest amusement is forming a quartet to sing in imitation of bagpipes.' I could listen to it by the hour. It makes me laugh, as I have not laughed in a long time. There comes one of your pupils who has a real claim on you, she said. I recognize the English gate. Yes, I know her, said Leschetizky. I have just caught sight of her hand. Let me see yours. Mine are big and ugly, she protested. No, not ugly at all, but your gloves are too thick. Will you take them off? he asked, growing suddenly suspicious. Not until afterward, she said. And then, if you do not recognize me, I will say these words to you. We met once in Italy. I shall remember, said Leschetizky. After many hours of great enjoyment and various attempts to intrigue Leschetizky, and sometimes for a moment successful, the signal was given to unmask. We went to one of the rooms behind the boxes together, 
and of course one of our little party was in high spirits. I succeeded, she said, until at the end, when he looked at my hand and almost recognized it. He saw the thick glove and became suspicious, but I will still try when we go down separately. As this quiet girl came into the ballroom unmasked and in usual evening gown, Leshetitsky, who stood scanning the appearance of everyone who descended the staircase, stepped forward and asked, "'Haven't we met in Italy?' She looked straight at him with a blank, bewildered expression and passed on. Leshetitsky still continued to examine the returning people and exclaimed to one of us who was nearby, "'The witch! I was so sure I had her at last!' This was too much fun for our gravity, and he had to admit that he had been well intrigued. We started home together with several Viennese friends, and on separating at the park back of the Houses of Parliament, a girl called softly to him. We did meet in Italy, Professor. Was that really my English rose? asked Leshetitsky gaily. Italy was a pleasant place, wasn't it? I should like to have stayed longer. Another famous ball of Vienna was the Concordia, organized by writers and journalists. Artists of all kinds attended, while composers contributed new music dedicated to the Concordia. Strauss, Franz Lehár, and others composed new waltzes and polkas for the ball of February 4, 1904, given as usual in the Sophien's Saal, one of the largest in Vienna. This year, the ball was an exceptionally brilliant one, it was said, as so many celebrated strangers were present. The souvenirs presented to each guest were in the form of small white leather handbags, the two sides resembling the covers of a book, beautifully impressed in green and yellow with a copy of a famous painting in medallion. Inside this book, with a gilt handle, was a collection of sixty or more leaflets entitled Letters That Reached, little letters written and dedicated to the Viennese ladies from poets, actors, and critics all over the continent. There were several from Italy and many from France, and with few exceptions they were accompanied by a photograph of the author. One exception was Catul Mendes, the famous French poet and critic, who had answered the request for his photograph by replying that he preferred to have his likeness conspicuous by its absence, and would attend the ball himself, trusting rather to his own efforts in person to make some impression, if that were possible. His letter was as follows. Little Letter for the Ladies of Vienna Ladies, so far away it is easy to be brave, but I am beginning already to tremble at the thought that in a few days I shall have the honor and the temerity to speak to you, humble poet that I am, and doubtless ignored by you. They tell so many precious things of that charm, entirely original, that distinguishes you from all the other women of Europe. May it be that your perfect and finished grace and your exquisite taste will not judge me too harshly. In admiration, Catul Mendes.
Gerhard Hauptmann wrote a beautiful poem that many of the guests poured over and committed to memory, while Adolf Wilbrandt, Ludwig Fulda, and Otto Brahm, the great director of the Lessing Theatre in Berlin, wrote charming long letters in verse. Eugène Brieux contributed also, and George Onet wrote from Paris, Dear ladies, our writers, our composers, and our artists are so cordially received in Vienna that your beautiful city seems to be another Paris to us, and we have heard played so often the beautiful blue Danube that this river seems to flow by us at the same time as our Seine. This is why, dear ladies, we can never refuse anything to the Viennese. Arthur Schnitzler, the Viennese, wrote a characteristic letter saying, freely translated, When one who is not good himself but only good-hearted has the fortune to achieve something really worthwhile that his negligent heart has hardly intended, there is still seldom a rose without a thorn, for as much as the memory of an undertaking that was not worthy of us troubles us, still harder to bear is the remembrance of an act toward us which we ourselves were not perfectly worthy. At the end of the room was a large stage where the most notable guests congregated and talked. Great actors from the theatre were there, Goltz and Rauschinger, the well-known portrait painters, Philip de Laszlo, taking artistic delight in the surroundings, Madame Wiesinger, the celebrated painter of flowers, many composers of Vienna, of Italy, and of France, Leschetizky and other famous musicians. Catul Mendes was talking with evident great joy, and many ladies were hovering about him. The spirit of Vienna was, in the truest sense of the word, artistic. Writers, actors, musicians, royalty came together there for art's sake. It was the emperor's delight to be present at rehearsals at the theatre and opera, and he would lend historical costumes when he thought it necessary to enhance the beauty of the scene or enliven the imagination of the audience. The great libraries of Vienna were searched for chronological details. The emperor contributed largely to the preservation of traditions in Vienna, both artistic and religious. People marveled at his energy in his old age, as, for example, on Corpus Christi Day, when he walked for miles through the city in the famous pageant. It required three or four hours for this slow procession to pass the different stations where his apostolic majesty knelt and prayed and so preserved this ancient tradition for his people. This celebration was instituted by papal decree in the year 1264. It was appointed for the first Thursday after the festival of the Trinity, and has been famous from that day to this as one of the most magnificent pageants in Europe. All the offices of the court and of civil life were represented. The official representatives of all the provinces of Austria and Hungary, mounted soldiers in magnificent grey uniforms, led a procession of companies from all the charitable institutions of the church, including priests of different orders, Dominican, Franciscan, and hooded Capuchins, and bishops, 
and archbishops in their robes of office. Finally there came the gorgeous white and gold embroidered canopy, supported at its corners on staffs borne by officials beneath which walked the cardinal in his red robes carrying the host upon a golden salver. Following this on foot and bareheaded, humbly passed an erect and kingly figure, the emperor. Behind him came members of the imperial family, princes, and nobles. Another tradition that the emperor upheld was the pious Fusvashung. Only a few people were allowed to witness this commemoration, which took place in the imperial palace. Through their ambassadors, foreigners could obtain cards of admission, with instructions to appear dressed in black. The emperor passed down through a long line of people on both sides to the place where twelve of the oldest and poorest men that were to be found in Vienna were waiting to view their emperor face to face as he imitated the humility of Christ in washing the feet of his disciples. These twelve old men could be seen trembling with emotion or weeping as the emperor approached and distributed to each one of them a bag of gold. One might write for hours about the life and traditions of this beautiful city and still leave much to be told. At the court chapel on Sundays and at the votive church, old Palestrina masses were given. Very beautiful organ playing was to be heard at the cathedral where old Zechter had played in former years. In all this, it was said, the emperor had a hand, and his influence upon the artistic atmosphere of Vienna was of the best, and of his many kind and considerate actions there is abundant record. One American girl felt herself amply compensated for a bad fall in a blinding snowstorm and a narrow escape from being run over by swiftly driven horses when she saw bending over her the anxious face of the emperor who had sprung from his seat and would have helped her to her feet had it been necessary. On a few occasions American ladies were presented to him who always paid most glowing tribute to his sincere and interesting conversation which was indeed not always abbreviated. To one he remarked that it made him proud of his Vienna to think that so many strangers found it profitable to study there. Another one had prepared herself for every possible question that might be asked her in French or German and was naturally somewhat confused when His Majesty addressed her in perfect English. In the brilliant society of Vienna, Leschetizky was a great magnet, and therefore always a much sought-for and welcome guest. People seemed exhilarated by his presence. He drew them around him, and in some curious way stimulated them to talk, become animated tell stories, and express their opinions. There was never a trace of self-consciousness about him. I think he saw everything in pictures, and the picture itself interested him. He listened intently to every word that was spoken to him and lost himself in the conversation of anyone who had something interesting to say. He never, by any chance, went anywhere he did not want to go but he loved people and, next to music, found humanity the most interesting thing in the world. 
he liked best those semi-formal assemblages where he could hold real conversations with those he chose, meet people he had already met, and meet them often enough so that the threads of previous conversations were not broken or lost. If he had to drive long distances, or to take the train even to spend a few hours at friends' houses, he thought little of the inconvenience, and was apparently happy all the way in the contemplation of the pleasure that lay before him. There were pleasant places in the neighborhood of Vienna where Leschetizky spent many hours with congenial friends. One of these was Kaltenleutgeben, where Madame von Dutschka, one of his greatest friends, spent the summer. Among the many who frequented her house were Alice Barbie, the great singer, Countess Widenbruch Esterhassy, a most accomplished and beautiful woman, the Baron Berger, for some years the director of the court theatre in Vienna, Adolf Wilbrandt, the poet, who had for a long time been director of the theatre, Count Kudenhof, princes and princesses, and last but not least, Mark Twain and his family. It was here that Alice Barbie discovered the beautiful voice of Clara Clemens, and persuaded her to give up the study of piano for the sake of her voice. Clara, who played really beautifully, had come to Vienna to study with Leschetizky. She played at one of the classes, and Leschetizky thought we would all remember it as most poetical and charming. One of the brothers of the Count Kudenhof was a naturalist and philanthropist. He had a large farm in South Africa, but instead of going to the north to kill wild animals, he collected them in their wild state and domesticated them on his farm, where they could be safe from danger. He was known to be a man incapable of killing any living thing. The poet, Wilbrandt, who now spent much time in Rostock, came back frequently to his beloved Vienna. His son and daughter-in-law lived in Germany, while his wife, Madame Wilbrandt Bodias, was one of the great actresses of the court theatre in Vienna, and Wilbrandt divided his time between them and relatives in Rostock. He was a real poet, and a man of exalted idealism. He often came to Vienna to be present at the first performance of one of his dramatic pieces. His play, The Master of Palmyra, now considered a German classic, was much admired by Mark Twain. Of Madame von Dutschka's Salon in Vienna, Wilbrandt wrote a long account in the Neue Freie Presse. He called it a salon of the best traditions, and so indeed it was. Statesmen, clergymen, artists, and actors from all over Europe met there on the most familiar and easy terms. A member of the House of Parliament remarked that he could not live without half an hour's conversation every day with Madame von Dutschka. Directors of museums liked to talk with her. Mr. de Scala, the artistic director of the Industrial Museum, sought her opinion on laces and other special matters. The well-known opera singer Mariana Brandt was usually at her house, and Alice Barbie was a welcome guest whenever she was in Vienna. Madame von Dutschka's Friday afternoons were devoted to music. 
and Leschetizky rarely missed looking in on these occasions. The charming hostess turned easily from one language to another and conscientiously spoke to each guest in his own. Leschetizky loved her brilliant conversation. He thought it a great privilege and a compliment to him for one of his pupils to play at her house, and he called himself her court pianist. One day Mariana Brandt consented to sing if he would play one of his mazurkas. She sang some Schumann songs, especially the Nussbaum, with a depth of feeling that moved the guests to tears. Leschetizky then played not only a mazurka of his own, but other things as well for nearly an hour. Whenever a pupil of Leschetizky played at one of these musicales, he advised him to improvise for a while until he had overcome all nervousness, for it was not the easiest place in the world to play. The guest stood or sat rather near the piano, and had a way of listening rather curiously and critically to amateurs. Leschetizky would tell us to play small and appropriate pieces, but to play them beautifully. One afternoon, when I was asked to play, Leschetizky came quickly forward. "'No waltzes and no humorous pieces today,' he said. "'Lenbach has just died, and his friend Wilbrandt is here.'" Madame von Dutschka loved her friends, and they were all devoted to her. She very seldom appeared in public, and almost never visited other people, either alone or among other guests. Her life was most methodical. She rose early and devoted some time to reading, then she walked for two or three hours, taking a light second breakfast out of doors. After that she composed and prepared herself for receiving her guests, who began to arrive at about three o'clock. She sat at the head of a long table, except on Fridays, which had become famous as afternoons of good music. At her table she gave herself to the entertainment of her guests, and talked brilliantly on any subject that seemed to be uppermost in their minds. At least a dozen people came to her house every day, and went away refreshed in spirit, and looking forward to the next day when they might hear and see her again. Her rooms were simply furnished, but extremely comfortable. There were six or eight large sofas with large comfortable chairs around them. When there were few people, she shut off a room or two so that there should be no empty or lonely spaces. Another famous salon was that of the Princess Lubomirska, who was one of the cleverest and most beautiful women I have ever known. Besides being an accomplished person, she was a woman of large and varied affairs, and an indefatigable participator in works of charity. She rose at five o'clock in the morning, and had her household affairs mapped out in perfect order before any of her household had begun the day. She taught her children the classics and music, and after her husband's death she continued to carry on his extensive interests in the Galician oil fields. She paid visits to the poor during part of the day, was at Madame von Dutschka's for tea at five o'clock, and could be found dancing the mazur in the evening at Polish balls. Her father, the Count Zever Zamoyski, was a man of the highest culture. He was a patron of art, 
an excellent judge of pictures, and wrote some charming songs. He was clever, a delightful raconteur, and a great favorite in the Viennese society. Artists loved to have him with them, and Leschetitsky, too, felt greatly pleased and honored whenever he came out to his house to one of the classes. In these pages I salute with reverence his lofty idealism and his high attainments as scholar and artist. He was a great Polish gentleman, and, as Wilbrandt once said, there are no better in the world. The Princess Lubomirska's Saturday evenings were like Madame von Dutschka's Friday afternoons, devoted especially to music. One met there the distinguished Hungarian portrait painter Philip de Laszlo, who was also very musical. He often sang delightful Hungarian melodies at his own house. They were always very free and weird. If one could accompany him at all at the piano while he chanted or sang these wild songs, he was delighted, but this was very difficult, as he had no notes and sang very freely and emotionally. Mrs. de Laszlo, who was an Irish lady, played the violin very beautifully, but could never be persuaded to appear in public. The Flonzelis also played one evening at the Princess Lubomirska's, and Frank Laforge pleased everyone there several times with his beautiful phrasing and exquisite tone. Royalty sometimes appeared there. The Japanese ambassador was often present, and also the Chinese ambassador in his oriental dress. It was a rendezvous of famous Polish and Hungarian statesmen who could be heard conversing in Latin. A very vivid picture in my memory is that of Leschetitsky coming quietly into the room one evening, looking rather white and old. His brilliant eyes glanced about the suddenly hushed room, and people whispered, Leschetitsky is here. In a few minutes, as usual, he had drawn to himself a circle of listeners who gave him the profoundest attention. Someone asked if there was any way to get him to play. I answered that if going on my knees would accomplish this, I would undertake it, and I did. It is not possible to refuse that, said Leschetitsky. Amid much applause, he went to the piano and played with that splendid fire and grace and poetry that was natural to him. He played Chopin on this occasion, mazurkas, polonaises, and nocturnes, finishing with the F minor fantasy. He had looked tired at first, but all signs of fatigue soon disappeared, and those who had never heard him play before were astonished at the power of piano playing under his fingers, to move them and at the depth and variety of his interpretations. <laughs>